Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you today from the Columbia University 2019 China and the World Forum. Hello, Columbia. All right. I am Kaiser Guo, and today on the Seneca Podcast, we are going to revisit a topic that I suspect will be with us for the rest of this program's natural life and beyond, and one where changes happen with such frequency that I think it's important to come back to it fairly frequently. I am talking, of course, about the U.S.-China technology relationship which, of course, isn't just about the U.S. and China, but really affects pretty much every major economy and most of the minor ones to boot. We are very glad to have with us one of, of, really, the one individual who I think explains these things best of everyone I know with such clarity and with such tremendous insight, my good friend Sam Sachs. Thank you, Kaiser. You guys know her from previous appearances, not only on this show, but on China Econ Talk and on, on Ta for Ta as well. Sam is Cybersecurity Policy and China Digital Economy Fellow at New America and has done countless media appearances as well as offered really important congressional testimony on issues related to technology and China. Sam, it's so great to have you back. It's a pleasure to be back and to be with all of you today. Thanks so much. Yeah, all right. So Paul Triolo was originally going to be joining us, and it would have been great to have his perspective, but alas, he is stuck in California for work and will not be able to join. Please, though, if you aren't already doing so, make sure to read his regular column for China, where he chronicles what he calls the tech cold war between the U.S. and China, and he always has a really smart and original take. So let's get started. Sam, uh, when we had you on last for a live show, uh, it was back in March, but in the, what, now six long months since then, a great deal has transpired, some very serious ups and downs. Uh, If you don't mind, let's quickly sketch out some of what's happened since. So first, in May, the Trump administration really ramped up its efforts to bring Huawei to its knees. Uh, Huawei, of course, you know, the world's largest telecommunications equipment manufacturing company. Uh, When the Commerce Department's Bureau of Industry and Security placed Huawei on its entities list. Sam, for our listeners who haven't followed this very closely, what is the entity list exactly and and how is it likely to impact Huawei? Sure. The entity list essentially bars any company from doing business with the United States by requiring a license to export products and services. These are companies that are deemed a threat to U.S. national security or at odds with U.S. foreign policy. But I will say that two things happened. The entity list came out right after another announcement. It was like a one-two punch. Uh First, the Trump administration issued an executive order, Uh which would ban any transaction deemed a threat to U.S. national security, giving the Commerce Department 
broad sweeping authority, of course, squarely aimed at China and Huawei, but potentially bigger. And we can talk later about that. Then came the entity list announcement. So that's so where just, we are. just on the executive order. That is actually coming up pretty soon where there's going to be a major decision. What date is that going to be? October 12th, we're going to get what are called interim rules, which are meant to narrow the scope of that executive order. This okay. is really important because as the executive order is written right now, it's not just Huawei that would be banned from you. And we're talking about a two-way thing, right? This is U.S. companies being banned from buying equipment, which mm -hmm. is the entity list is bar barring U.S. companies from selling. Right. The executive order could potentially apply to any Chinese company deemed a national security threat. So let's watch October 12th. Are they going to narrow the scope of this? Wow, that is as truth threatening. So right after that, uh, the company Google, of course, uh, which is, of course, the, the company behind the Android operating system that's used, you know, I think on nearly all of Huawei's handsets. Huawei, of course, is in addition to being a telecoms equipment manufacturer, a very, very large producer of handsets. Uh, it suddenly announced that it was not going to be providing updates of its Android operating system to Huawei for use on those handsets. Uh, we'll get into that in just a minute, but let's keep going first on this highlights reel. Uh, so then at the end of June in, in at the G20 uh, meeting in Osaka in Japan, Donald Trump met with Chinese President Xi Jinping, and Trump appears to have suddenly backed off, at least momentarily, on restrictions on Huawei and allowed some vendors to continue to sell parts to Huawei, uh, prompting some to wonder whether his worries about Huawei aren't really just actually about trade and not really about national security at, at all. Sam, what is your take on, on this question? Um, is he just... You know, is this about leverage on Beijing with trade negotiations? Uh, just another piece in Trump's all-consuming obsession with with uh, with trade, the upcoming negotiations, and and uh, deficit. Uh, and what has the reaction been to him basically admitting this in this action? Uh, that, that is the reaction among people who have genuine concerns about national security. The G20 was significant because Trump made Huawei an explicit part of a negotiation with the trade deal with China. Now, for a year or so before, as tensions and trade talks have been going on, the Trump administration had been insisting that any action taken against Huawei was a separate track. This is a law enforcement, this is a national security measure, they're not linked. At the G20, Trump comes out of the meeting with Xi and he says, wait a second, what we're willing to do is do a swap of soybeans for Huawei, and we're going to let U.S. companies sell to the quote-unquote non-national security parts of the business. As you can imagine, this led to a pretty significant uproar because the Trump administration for, I think, about two years now has given a green light to national security hardliners in Washington saying, now is the time to launch an all-out campaign. Huawei is going to be front and center. And then he comes out and says, wait, I want to use this as a chip in a trade negotiation. You can't do both. Right. Well, Mr. Transactional President. Uh, so now there's very much, there's hair on this. Uh, is this something that Canada, for example, might be able to look at and say, well, now it's quite clear that your, uh, your decision to ask us to, to arrest and then extradite Meng Wanzhou, the CFO, is really clearly political. Right. I think you have countries around the world baffled because the Trump administration has launched a campaign across Europe, other parts of Asia, Latin America, saying, look, 
Huawei is a threat to national security. You need to ban Huawei from your 5G networks. So now this is a chip. It doesn't make sense, which raises the question, back to your earlier question, Kaiser, is the U.S. campaign against Huawei about a genuine national security threat, or is this about market dominance? Which is it? Or is it about having leverage over Beijing? You can't have all of those at once. So um, maybe you can give us a sense for how much of a reprieve that was actually for Huawei, uh, how much it matters actually now, or, or has this already been superseded by you know, his, his, his new tougher line? Uh, is this, did this help give them a little bit of breathing room at all? So let's look at what the impact of the ban has been on Huawei. Okay. Huawei purchases a, a whole number of products from U.S. companies. It includes things like sofas. It includes huh. things like chips. It includes the operating system provided from Google, the Android operating system. So the question is, how much impact has this had? Um, recently, I was with some senior executives from Huawei, and the comment was, we can stockpile components, but we can't stockpile apps, uh, right? right? So after the ban in May, any existing equipment, there was a, a la something called a temporary general license, and it would allow companies to continue to service existing contracts and equipment. So you could provide a software update, for example, on a Huawei phone that ran a Google uh, Android operating system, but any new device would not have that software update, and it also would not come preloaded with Google Apps, like Google Play or Google Maps or Gmail. So presumably this would make Huawei phones a lot less attractive to consumers, say, in Europe who might be considering one. They buy it and they discover that it doesn't have any of the Google uh, properties on it. Right? And Huawei has been making a big play to sell premium handsets in Europe. So then the question is, who's going to spend money to buy that kind of a phone if it's not going to have the apps? Indeed. <laughs> um, I should say one other thing. So it's not just the apps. On the chip side, there also is an issue. And this is something that Paul Triolo has written extensively about on SubChina, which is Huawei has its own internal chip division called High Silicon. Right. Now, they make their own chips, and they've made some really important strides, as Paul has talked about extensively. The issue is they rely on chip design makers, electronic design tools. So if they can't license the design for the chips, then that also gets in the way of self-reliance from what high silicon can do. Right, right, right. And, of course, a lot of people are wondering whether all of this pressure isn't accelerating the timetable for Huawei and for other Chinese companies to pursue uh, more aggressively self-reliance, right? Uh, what are we seeing on that front? So if you go to the Huawei campus, there's a, a uh, one of the sort of you know, myths, the lures that exist there is a bullet-riddled fighter jet from World War II. And, huh. it's, and it's the idea that you know, we're going to sort of endure this um, and get through it. Um, that this is going to be a tough period, but just you know, look at this jet as an example of kind of what you can get through. I mean, look, I don't think this, if the ban stays in place, and we can talk about the different scenarios for that, I don't think this would kill Huawei, but it would make it a fundamentally different kind of company. Right. Because it very nearly did kill ZTE, uh, which is a state-owned because of, of violations of sanctions agreements, was penalized very, very heavily. But Trump sort of ended up sparing its life and fining it very heavily and changing the composition of its board. 
but the company continues to, to operate. And right after the ban on ZTE was announced, just about one year earlier than Huawei, Xi Jinping came out with a speech and he basically said, this is exactly why we need to reduce reliance on foreign suppliers in these core technologies. Um, and so I think we're already seeing the wheels set in motion to double down on boosting indigenous innovation, industrial policies to do so. So as we heard about recently here uh, at this conference, people were talking about in the last couple of days, Trump has gone back to talking very tough, if, you know, very incoherently on Huawei once again. It's looking like not only are, are uh, Huawei and, and other telecoms companies are going to make it onto the Commerce Department's naughty list, but there may be pretty significant broadening of targets by the U.S. government to include even investments uh, by Chinese tech firms and, as we were saying this, this morning, perhaps uh, American investment in Chinese list codes, in Chinese companies listed in the United States. What, what, I mean, Bloomberg talked about that. Reuters followed the FT had a story about that. But is this, do we know anything about whether, how well sources is it just an idea that was floated or? So I think there is legislation in the works. The idea to, you know, limit what U.S. In, the, the, the exposure that U.S. investors would have to Chinese companies. And we'll have to see how that legislation pans out. But it's, it's definitely part of a ramp up in rhetoric coming from the Trump administration in just the past couple weeks where we've seen the lens broadening. I mentioned the executive order. Um, you've had senior State Department officials come out and say, Huawei and its siblings, that's the, the terminology that was used, are actually all part of a military-civil fusion effort in China. Right. Um, and that the, this, this is something that the U.S. government also is going to have to, to grapple with. Huh. So you mentioned just now uh, that the Trump administration has been trying very actively to enlist allies and other countries uh, that, that the United States regards as sort of quasi-allies in this kind of effort to exclude... Uh, procurements from Huawei to keep them out of especially 5G build-outs. How is that going? Uh, has there been any, any movement with any of these countries uh, in Europe or uh, in in other regions of the world? I think the Trump administration has been surprised that their campaign has not gone as well as, it, as they mm. thought. Um, so what we're seeing is actually a spectrum of responses. The latest, you know, so you've got an, a full ban from places like Australia, but then you really have a number of governments that are very much still in play and are grappling with this. Um, so uh, Germany and the UK and France, I think, are very much on the fence. The UK position has been long held that, look, they've had Huawei in the network for 15 years. They went in clear-eyed about the national, the cybersecurity risks, as well as, you know, about what the Chinese government could potentially compel the company to do. We could talk about whether that's accurate or not, right? They, they, they maintain, look, we know the risks. We set up a system around it, a sort of layered network defense where we keep Huawei out of the core, out of the critical, um, and we also evaluate everything that comes on. So you've got the sort of UK in the middle. Germany is, I think, caught in the middle as well. Yeah. Um, the latest Estonia 
Estonia, which is one of the most mature from a cybersecurity, from a technological standpoint in the world, they came out and said, we will restrict Huawei and our 5G networks. But then you have Hungary. Hungary came out recently and said, we're very excited to have Huawei be part of our sort of vendor list. So I think what you're going to see is a spectrum of responses around the world. It's not going to be as clear cut. And what the answer, frankly, has been is the U.S. government is going around without any clear evidence. And they're saying, look, rip out 40 to 50 percent of your network, look at maybe delaying 5G deployment by two to three years and do so because we tell you there's a national security risk, even if we don't have any proof of it. I can't wait to hear the transcripts or see the transcripts of the phone calls around those conversations. Hey, uh, Huawei, (laughs) I need you to do me a favor with Huawei here. Um, I want to drill down a little bit. Um, Sam, we were talking earlier about uh, how uh, while this may hurt China's uh, Huawei's telecommunications networking equipment a bit, it looks like it's the consumer side. It's on handsets where it'll be worse that you can't, as, as the Google people told you, or as the Huawei people told you, you can't stockpile apps. Uh, that's certainly the case. So what is uh, Huawei doing in terms of developing its own operating system? Oh, I read a little earlier about Huawei actually releasing handsets now with some sort of a home, homegrown OS. Is this just a rather sophisticated Android fork, or is this really truly a ground-up, uh, you know, from-scratch new OS? So this is the, the Harmony operating system, mm-hmm. um, and they're, they're, in theory, are ways that app developers can still do, you know, what they would with an Android system with it. I think it will be much more burdensome, and it's essentially starting from ground zero. Ah, so okay. it will make it much more difficult, I think, to sell this phone at premium prices outside of China. Yeah, so, I mean, they're going to have to have their own app markets, presumably, and, yeah, yeah, that would be very burdensome indeed, quite, quite a large uh, undertaking for, for them. I want to take a break here. I, I need to read a little bit of ad copy and pay a bill, but this is, I think, something that many of you might be interested in. If you're looking for a study abroad program that will take your Chinese language skills to the next level, study abroad with CET, CET Academic Programs, which began in Beijing in 1982, has trained a generation of China watchers and scholars, including folks like Evan Osnos of The New Yorker and Jessica Beinecke of OMG Meiyu and many others. Our own Seneca contributor, David Moser, served as academic director for CET Beijing for many years and still advises on CET programs. With programs for college, high school, and gap year students in seven cities, CET offers options for every student and language level. Intern in Shanghai or Taipei, study intensive Chinese language in Beijing, Harbin, or Kunming, or spend a gap year in Beijing. You can even send your high schooler to Shanghai for the summer or on a semester-long program to Dali in Yunnan. Spring, summer, and fall 2020 programs are now accepting applications. For more information, visit cetacademicprograms.com slash Seneca. That's cetacademicprograms.com slash Seneca. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, now, back to the show. And more on on, on, on operating systems and, uh, and, and whatnot. One thing that's been 
curious to me. If the obsession really is about national security, is it safer from a national security uh, perspective to have all these phones using Google's Android operating system? Or is it safer for them to be using a Huawei-built OS? It depends on whose safety you're talking about. Okay. So from, Go- the American, from the American From the American view. standpoint, yeah. but still. So um, Google lobbied the administration um, on this point, and they said, look, you should restore the Android license because our system is going to be inherently more secure than a, any kind of Huawei or Chinese indigenous operating system. Um, so how receptive has this been? Well, we still don't know. Uh, but then it gets back to the point of if this ultimately is going to be a swap of Android for soybeans, which is what it looks like, <laughs> uh, is this really about national security or not. Uh, there's also an argument to be made that maybe it's beneficial to have an operating system that is easily exploitable. And that's why I talk about it depends on whose safety you're referring to. Well, so I mean, that's something to tell those iOS partisans, all those, those Mac heads out there, tell them that you say Android isn't worth a hill of beans. Well, I say it's worth 40, 150 million <laughs> tons of soybeans. That's a hell of a hill of beans. Anyway. What about other Chinese companies? I mean, who else is actually headed for uh, the the entity list, for this naughty list? I mean, I could totally understand companies that like Hikvision that work uh, on facial recognition software that's powered by AI or um, on, on whole camera systems. That I could understand them making the naughty list. Uh, but I, I understand they're even talking about companies like DJI, which manufactures a huge percentage of the world's commercial drones. Right. And, in, and DJI drones also provide, you know, they were first responders and then Notre Dame Fire. They provide right. cover at major stadium events in the U.S. Um, that one, to me, if you want to take a real cynical look at it, DJI has such a position of market dominance in the consumer drone sector that I think there is, you know, definitely a sort of cynical argument to be made around that. But to your question, who else is, you know, potentially on the yeah, hit on the list? list yeah. um, there are rumblings about Chinese companies that are seen to be providing surveillance equipment related to uh, the the detention of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So, like, and, a, and I can even get behind that. Totally. I, think, yeah. I mean, and this is an area where the, the 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 tool of a sanction is something that I think has teeth and should be deployed against actors when there is a problem. Right. The question is, if you look on the sort of list of who is sanctioned and who's not, you know, is there, are, are they going after the right, the, the right actors? Right. Um, you know, now if, are we talking about, if you read the, um, the State Department speeches from Christopher Ford just in the past couple of weeks, it makes it sound like Alibaba or Tencent could be on its way. And here I just think there's this sort of narrative about Chinese companies and their relationship with the government that there's a need for a more target understanding. Different companies in China have different kinds of relationships with the government. And I don't know if the the, accurate framework for assessing what is a risk and what's not a risk is being applied at the moment. That's right. Just because a company has a Communist Party cell, they're all required to, does not mean that they're going to do the bidding of the Chinese Communist Party with no questions asked, right? Right. I mean, we've seen, you know, Yuan Yang at the FT has done some excellent reporting. She came out with a scoop just the other week talking about how Alibaba and Tencent had actually pushed back um, and refused to turn over certain credit data to the Chinese government, Hmm. right? So there's a little bit, and we've talked about this before on previous episodes. 
Yeah, no, I think that's that's a very very fair point. Um, I having worked myself for companies, I've seen that in action. I've seen you know the ability to push back against that. And look, that's not to say that you know we need to just ignore the extent of where those relationships are. I just think we need to use a more precise, targeted way to identify it. And this is something that I've testified extensively about in, to Congress this year. Let's let's talk about what Beijing has done in response to this. Uh, one thing that, that is that Beijing may be preparing its own sort of, a, of an entities list, uh, a, uh, an unreliable entities list. A Ministry of Commerce spokesperson said the other day at a press conference uh, that that might be in the works. Uh, can you comment on that? So earlier this year, uh, Beijing came out with this unreliable list and it sort of appeared locked and loaded. And, and during different moments, it seemed more a possibility that it was going to come out. Uh, at the moment, we haven't really seen any mm. retaliation yet. Um, and I think there are some that are saying, actually, the Chinese response has been quite measured if you look at it. I think if it were to be deployed, it wouldn't just be this unreliable list, but there are a number of regulatory tools. Um, if you look at China's cybersecurity, legal and regulatory system, different tools that could be brought out to delay um, licenses to operate, you know, on-site raids, cancellations, various things. We haven't really seen them yet, so it's something to watch. Yeah, so they do have, you say, a pretty potent set of tools in their in their toolkit, right? Yeah, that they could they could roll out. Um, and I mean, even more broadly, what does this all look like from behind the the eyes of a of a, a Beijing tech Mandarin, uh, somebody who's looking at this all this stuff unfolding? Just put yourself in in their shoes for a second here and, and explain what all of this looks like from Beijing's perspective. I think we don't hear that enough. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, look at me. I'm the wrong person to be asking about that. <laughs> no, but I think but, uh, you, you probably can exercise that kind of empathy better than most. So I, one thing that I will say is if I, if I were a Chinese government official, I would be very wary of putting my neck out to make a deal with this administration right now because this is a president that has proven himself to be so unreliable um, and if I were the one to come out and come to the table and say, okay, here's what we've committed to, and then something happens, it turns out Trump lied, backs out of it, I'm the one that's on the line for that. Why would I want to negotiate under those circumstances? We know that a Democrat, if a Democrat's elected, the Democrat's probably going to be just as hawkish and would be even more scary because instead of doing it unilaterally, the Democrats are going to work with Europe and the Japanese, and that's going to be much more difficult to pallet from China's perspective. Yeah, that's what I was going right? to say. I mean, on so, the one hand, they... So yeah, he's unreli you have either unreliable or reliably more maybe a, a, a more formidable foe. So which would you which which would you take? That's a tough choice. I don't know how they're reacting then to hear the, the news of the whistleblower report on Trump's phone call with with Volodymyr Zelensky. I, I mean, I don't I don't know how I would react to it. It's a tough one. Uh, is, uh, but let's 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 look over at, on the other side of this continent at Silicon Valley and how American tech firms are lining up on either side of this debate. Um, I'm hearing that, that they're taking different sides for pretty much purely selfish reasons. If, if you look at some of the statements that have come out in the couple, last couple weeks from American tech firms, you see, again, a spectrum of responses. Mm -hmm. uh, President of Microsoft, Brad Smith, a few weeks ago, very publicly condemned the Trump administration's attacks on Huawei as being un-American. Uh, and he said, look, at Microsoft, here's what we hear reg regularly. Regulators on the U.S. side will come to us and say, if you only knew 
what we knew, you would also not want to work with this company and would want to blacklist them all over the world. And he said, great, we are cybersecurity experts at Microsoft. Why don't you share with us what you know? And then as a cybersecurity professional, I can create a managed risk mitigation strategy around a known threat. But you've refused to do that. Now, I think this is interesting, not just on the merits of what he's saying, but the fact that he is so publicly coming out and sort of choosing a side in this. On the other hand, you have companies like Facebook Mm -hmm. who are sort of coming out really playing up the U.S.-China tech Cold War narrative. Because if you're Facebook and you're facing an antitrust investigation here at home, it is really beneficial to be able to point to, say, a ByteDance and say, look, ByteDance censored information to try to discredit the Hong Kong protesters. And we don't have any transparency into how they're doing that. Shouldn't you keep Facebook as strong as possible so that we can be in a position to take down ByteDance and all the (laughs) other, right? So if you look at a lot of different companies, you can see them kind of staking a claim on different sides of the tech cold war, which again goes back to, I think, a theme that we've been talking about today, which is the sort of cynical narrative of, who, from a market perspective, is going to be in a position to benefit from one side or the other. And just for our listeners who don't know who this company ByteDance is, they're the company behind the app, the super popular app, especially with young people, Douyin in English, TikTok, uh, which is a short video app, which is just storming the United States. And yes, I think what, the, what, what they say is, is a fair criticism. We've seen a lot of reporting just in the last few days about the extent of censorship uh, actually on the, the international version of Douyin on TikTok itself, which they had denied uh, was actually doing any any censoring of content. Uh, so that, I think, is... is and so uh, this, to me, Kaiser, raises an interesting question. When we talk about the technology conflict with China, uh, and this is something that my colleague at New America, Graham Webster, has talked and written extensively about, how much is this really about China and how much of this is the idea that we are in a moment of unknown in terms of how these emerging technologies should be regulated. What are they going, what impact are they going to have on on societies? And in some ways, those existential questions about these, these technologies, you know, censorship on internet platforms, for example. Now, this is sort of the US China conflict is being projected onto these much bigger questions which may have nothing to do. With the U.S. and China, in some ways. Yeah, I, let's 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 follow up on that. I mean, I think that's a really uh, interesting thing. This isn't really just about uh, a bilateral conflict. This is, I mean, you might even say it's kind of a challenge to globalism or to globalization it, itself. And I think that the the ban on Huawei represents, in many ways, a a bigger ch- shift in the way that we think about interconnection, supply chains, but also technologies, right? I mean, there was a, you know, there's a period in the 90s which was maximize productivity and efficiency through, go out around the world and find the cheapest and most efficient way to do that. Right. And now I think that level of interconnection itself is becoming weaponized. It's becoming used as a, as a geopolitical tool 
um, because of the vulnerability inherent in it. So if we continue down this path that we're on with Huawei, I think we're going to see similar um, knock-on effects in other areas. So one that I'm looking at right now is I'm, I'm just starting a new book project looking at how this is all playing out when it comes to data. Hmm. And I think that we could be in a position where we start to see data flows be a focal point of geopolitics. So what do I mean by that, right? You look at um, the as part of this executive order that the Trump administration issued in May that would ban certain transactions because of their national security risks, data is going to be front and center in that. Right. You know, is the U.S. increasingly going to start looking at global transactions from the lens of who would have access to that data and what can they do with that? Are we going to start to see sort of, I'm calling them data spheres of influence, where maybe certain countries are going to form blocks where they agree to share data with, with, with like-minded governments and not others, right? So this is a way in which global supply chains, data flows are a more and more integral part of geopolitical competition. Uh, one final question for you uh, before we move to recommendations. I think this is, this is strange. Um, earlier this month uh, in, in, in September, reporters from The Economist magazine had a sit-down interview with the Huawei founder in Zhengfei uh, in Shenzhen, and he said something really remarkable. I don't know how much uh, a, a coverage this got in the, in the news, but uh, one of the reporters from The Economist asked him what ideas he had to establish or to restore trust. Trust, I mean, obviously is one of the fundamental issues that, that underlies all of the technology tensions between the United States and China, but really, you know, uh, not just involving Huawei. Uh, what Ren Zhengfei said was pretty astonishing, I thought. He, he, he said they would consider transferring Huawei's technology stack, and not just part of it. He very specifically said all of it, I think he said, the entire technology stack uh, to the United States or to presumably an American company. What did you think of that? Do you think that was a serious proposal? Would it actually work? What was his thinking behind that? So I thought it was a brilliant tactical move because hmm. Ren is essentially calling the bluff of the U.S. government, right? He's saying, look, Let's, let's, let's move to what this is really about. This is really about the threat that we pose from a market dominance standpoint. So let me just sell you the, the IP, and then you can have a viable U.S. competitor to Huawei. Now, is this realistic? To be honest with you, conversations that I've had with semiconductor industry folks, this has not really been taken very seriously. Right. It was not treated as a very serious offer. And the reason is, if you break it down, what would this mean in practice? The reason that Huawei is in the dominant position it is, is so much more than just IP. You know, right. IP theft alone is not a recipe for innovation for sort of global market dominance, right? It's the extent, it's pricing, it's, it's the, the extent of relationships, it's the, right. right? It's right. sort of a whole, and, and Paul Triolo has written about this sort of like all of the engineers and researchers that are working on this. So is that realistic? But it does mean, I think, that there is an effort to maybe try to come to the table and get to the real issues. Calling the bluff, saying, look, we strip away all the possible security concerns you might have with this. Are you? Is it ultimately about security or are you trying for more soybeans, or are you trying to... <laughs> Fascinating. Well, Sam, uh, as always, it's, it's, it's great to have you. Uh, let us move on to recommendations. As, as we all know, we, we make recommendations at the end of the show. Uh, Sam, what do you have for us? So I recently tore through two novels by Ooh. Sally Rooney, who is the Irish millennial novelist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and Very hot these days, yeah. She's fantastic. And what she does, which I think is just so incredible, is... Uh, 
she's able to sort of identify and map emotions and interpersonal relationships and ways of thinking about them that you may not even know until you read them how true it is. Huh. Which we were, Kaiser and I were talking earlier on the way here about some writing that we're doing as part of other projects. And I think this is something that from a China tech policy standpoint, there are, there are things we can learn from how Sally Rooney writes. You know, how, do you be re- how can you be really persuasive and sort of make your point in a way that speaks to so make our, our dry policy papers actually include an emotional connection. with her. All right, tall order there. Well, let's see what we can do about that. <laughs> I'm going to just nerd out here. Uh, I, I don't know how many, how many guitar players are there in the audience. Any guitar? We got, we got a couple of guitar players out here. I'm going to recommend a couple of pieces of guitar gear. Um, and the connection is because they come from China, which when I started playing guitar in China, you know, you had to import all this stuff. It was from Japan or from the U.S. And you never would have thought that, that some of the finest guitar effects and, and, and stuff like that come down from China. These, these electronics companies just blow me away. Uh, so one of them is a line of effects pedals from a company called Moor, M-O-O-E-R. Uh, two of them in particular are just top-notch. One is the Moore Radar Speaker Cab Emulator. You have no idea what that is, of course, but I do. And if you do play guitar, check this thing out. Uh, and another is a great overdrive pedal called the Hustle Drive. And for you guitar players out there, another really terrific little product is called the Joyo, J-O-Y-O, Jam Buddy, which is this tiny little thing, just small enough to basically put in your gig bag of your guitar, which is a pretty loud amp with quite a few uh, effects built into it with uh, Bluetooth, so you can sort of, you know, use your iPhone and, and play, you know, songs from Spotify or what, or, or what have you, and and play along uh, with them. It's, it's an amazing little thing. It sounds... So um, check it out. I mean, I think we're starting to see just tons of very, very interesting, very affordable electronics coming out of China. Uh, those pedals, one of them is like 50 bucks, the other's like 100. Uh, the Jam Buddy is like 70 or 80 bucks, and you can get all this stuff just on Amazon. It's pretty amazing. Anyway, Sam, uh, thanks so much. That was really fun. Thanks, Kaiser. I feel edified again. I'm going to go repeat your talking points to other people now. Uh, and I'm going to see you soon in Chapel Hill. See you in Chapel Hill. Yeah, all right. Uh, th- and thank you all for coming. All right. I look forward to seeing some of you folks at dinner. Thank you very much for the, the good people at, at, at Columbia for inviting us here. I had a terrific time. What, what a bunch of great panels. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Tsai Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, which I must say has just been particularly good recently. Make sure to check out a double issue that uh, with Julia Lovell about Maoism. We have two shows focused on women, New Voices and Ta for Ta, also a fantastically good show. And the Middle Earth Podcast on the culture industry in China. I do not want to leave out our brand new family member, Strangers in China. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.